And I would ask you at least to begin with to open your Bibles to Exodus 21. We're at least passing through that neighborhood. And so if you wish a, a head start, Exodus and chapter 21. We actually today are resuming our study of, of words scripture uses to describe our salvation. And what has been called the oral salutis. Latin for order of salvation. So now we both have the same amount of knowledge of Latin. Uh, do you recall what we've seen thus far? It's been quite a break. So what have we seen? Well, we started with really where the Ordo Salutis would begin. Uh, chronologically, we started with election, that is God's choice of specific sinners for salvation before the foundation of the world. And then effectual calling, that is God's invitation to sinners in the gospel, but not just an invitation, it's effectual. That is to say, it actually powerfully draws, truly brings sinners to Christ. Like Jesus said, no man can come except the Father who sent me draws him. Well, that's effectual calling. And then we looked at regeneration. That's that radical transformation in the core of man's being, uh, the new birth that's likened into a resurrection or a new creation. The point is, it's wrought by God's mighty power in making new creatures. In connection with that, we also looked at the word conversion, the word that means turning, like you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God to wait for his son from heaven, as First Thessalonians chapter 1. And it's the idea of responding to Christ and the gospel in faith and repentance. And though that is man's response, Yet, it is God's grace at work that brings that about, the new birth, and so forth. Well, that to which we uh, come this morning is a word that actually does not commonly appear in treatments of the Ordo, ordo Salutis, and yet it certainly is part of our salvation, and it's a word of which the Bible speaks much. In fact, using more than uh, one word family uh, for it. As the word or the facet of salvation we now consider is that of redemption. Deliverance from bondage or deliverance from the power of another, and that especially a release that is secured by payment of a price, like paying a ransom. So I've been kidnapped and a ransom is paid to secure that person's release. Well, that's the idea of redeemed. It's actually translated ransom in places. In fact, the words redemption, ransom, redeem, in our English, they represent, as I've said, two word families in the Greek, or we might think of it as two extended families, because you've got a number of prefixes that are also used in that connection. But they're all conveying the same basic idea, especially release from bondage through the payment of a price. And this New Testament language is very much rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, these same Greek words found here in the New Testament uh, were used in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And I want to consider just a, a few examples uh, quickly uh, to show you something of the idea of, of this word even being carried over from the Old Testament. And that's why I've asked you to begin with, to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 21, and notice, please, verse 29. Here it's talking about an ox that has gored and even killed a person. Verse 29, but if the ox tended to thrust with his horn in times past, 
and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. So here you have a case of a man's carelessness, uh, his disregard toward human life, not bothering keeping his ox up, and uh, therefore it's killed someone, and he himself is actually liable to the death penalty. Now, unlike outright murder, though, there's a remedy here that was available. He could redeem or he could ransom himself out of that. That is, his sin had forfeited his right to life. It brought him under the power of another, but by the payment of whatever sum was determined, he could buy his life back, if you please. He could secure release by the payment of a price. Well, <laughs> pardon me, this word here translated redeem, uh, it's in the, the very Greek word used in the Septuagint for that of which our Lord spoke in Matthew twenty twenty eight. I come to give my life a ransom for many. Same word, okay? We'll come to another text. That, again, just an illustration of the concept of redemption. In Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. <laughs> Here you have a different scenario but it is, again, a release by payment of a price. Verse 29 of Leviticus 25. <clears throat> if a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. With a full year, he may redeem it. Now, he sold this house perhaps out of financial straits, so it's no longer his, it's come under the power of another, but even so, he could buy it back. And the word that's used is redeem. It's the idea of releasing it by payment of a price. Well, this word, Greek word used in the Septuagint, is the same word used over in Hebrews 9.12 about how Christ has secured for us an eternal redemption. So, again, you get the idea of the word. Well, later in this chapter, we see that word used again. Now it's not talking about selling of a house, but selling of one's self. Notice verses 47 and 48 here of Leviticus 25. Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be, here's the word, redeemed again. Uh, one of his brothers may redeem him. Now, here again, it's a case of not simply a, a house that's sold, but dire straits. Uh, he's had to sell himself into slavery, so he's no longer uh, his own. He's under the power of another, again, even as a slave and in order to be released from that plight, well, he must be redeemed. That is to say, he must be delivered from that bondage by payment of a price. Well, let me just give you one more illustration. Here it's a negative of it, actually. It's Psalm 49. Psalm 49. Here's a case where 
This same family of words is used, as I say, in a negative sense uh, when the payment will not secure a release from bondage. Uh, verse 6 of Psalm 49, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever uh, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Well, you see the same idea. Uh, he's come under bondage. In this case, bondage is death. And here, in this case, there's no redemption. No matter how much this guy has, he's a rich man. Yeah, but no matter how much he pays, uh, he can't buy a release uh, from his brother or for his brother or anybody else. Again, no matter how much he has, he cannot secure release by the payment of a price. Well, I've looked at these, albeit briefly, uh, just to illustrate, here's the idea of redemption, even carried over from the Old Testament, and it underscores for us that when this word is used of our salvation, it means that salvation is release from a bondage, and especially release from by payment of a price. And we understand what that price was, and what a price indeed it took to secure our release, our deliverance. And Jesus said, I give my life a ransom for many, or Titus 2.14. We'll come back to that one this afternoon, where Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed, etc. That is all that he endured in our place, or First Peter 1. We'll come to that shortly, verses 18 and 19. You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, tawdry sums like that. No, no, no. You are redeemed with the precious blood of a lamb without spot and blood. A great price was paid to secure our deliverance. And, of course, when the word redeem, redemption is used so often, the emphasis, the focus, is on the price paid, that is, on Christ and what he himself has done. However, regularly in the New Testament, this word emphasizes uh, what we have been delivered from by that price. Okay? So it speaks not just of the price paid, but of what, uh, was secured for us by way of, of deliverance. In fact, there are several uses uh, of these words, these two-word families, that, that show at least something of the great breadth uh, of our deliverance. That, that is to say, how great was our need? Or to put it another way, the uses of this word underscore, our bondage was multifaceted. We were utterly helpless under so many uh, forms of bondage Ah, but it underscores then also how great is Christ's accomplishment, that by that work of redemption, he secured freedom, he secured deliverance in, connect, in all of these different connections. For instance, we find this word redemption used uh, for that which is going to happen at the very end, how uh, we're kept or sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. Well, we know what day that is. It's the last day. It's that of which Jesus spoke when he says your redemption draws near, well, it's the way it's used over like 1 Corinthians 1, how uh, we're in Christ who is to us wisdom, or righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Or later, in our, or Romans chapter 8, the redemption of our body. It points to that great release at the end. It's a redemption. A full and final deliverance from remaining sin, from death, uh, from the curse of uh, sin in this world, from all sorrow and pain 
and the like. And it is redemption. It is release from that bondage, especially by payment of a price and what a price it was. But that's not the only way this word redemption is used to describe our salvation. And there's something in the meantime, a redemption that predates that final redemption. Uh, indeed, something that's very necessary or that initial deliverance by Christ. Again, it presupposes a bondage. The very word redemption, well, it means there, there's a bondage uh, to be bought out from. Well, that was us. We were held in several kinds of bondage, and by his death, our Lord then secured that, as I've said, multifaceted release. So when Jesus says, the Son is set free, is free indeed, oh, so it is. This great and mighty multifaceted deliverance. Let's look at a few of these passages that speak of that, uh, three in particular. Firstly, Galatians chapter 3. Please come there. Galatians and the third chapter. And notice verse 13. Christ has redeemed us, has bought us out of bondage by payment of a price. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, what he means here by the curse of the law is the punishment due to those who have broken God's law. He quotes from the Old Testament back in verse 10 here in chapter 3, for as many as are of the works of law under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Well, the curse of the law means that the punishment due for all of those violations. Uh, have we all continued in all the things that are commanded in God's law? Well, no. We've not rendered perfect obedience always. Well, therefore, this curse of the law held under that unless, of course, redeemed or delivered by Jesus Christ. By each sin, each sin, we're exposed to divine vengeance. Justice cries out. Uh, It's God's law that we had broken. Remember texts like Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins will die, or Romans 6. Uh, 23, the wages of sin is that, well, we've all sinned. Therefore, we're all exposed to that vengeance. We're held under the power of justice by nature, uh, as if by a jailer who's just kind of awaiting the day of execution. Or maybe another picture uh, when it talks about uh, John 3.36, the wrath of God abides on those who do not have Christ. Perhaps, at least in my thing, it conjures up the idea of the the guillotine, which was admittedly uh, invented many years after those words were written. But the idea of, well, it was hanging over your head and ready to come crashing down just any minute. So the point is, because of sin, we were all in dire straits. We were uh, helpless. We were in a severe bondage from which we could not deliver ourselves. And so what we read here is good news. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is, by being made a curse for us, by bearing the penalty for sin on behalf of all of those who would trust in him, and thereby then delivering us by the payment of so great a price, having become that curse, that is to say, 
coming under the wrath of a holy God. Uh, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, or that 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He's the one who knew no sin, yet was made sin. That is, he was regarded and treated as sin itself. And there, Paul says in Romans 8, God condemned sin in the flesh. Everything that sin deserved, all that curse, he bore it in his own person on the tree. 1 Peter 2, 24, 1 Peter 3, 18, he suffered the just one in place of the unjust. And brethren, we know these verses. We know the concept. But but we must not fail to see the weight of all of it. What you, what I, what a multitude of sinners that cannot be numbered forever deserve to bear because of violating the law of God. All that justice required of us Christ bore in his own person on the truth. He exhausted, if you please, the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And thereby, he redeemed us, having been made a curse for us, paid in full, and thereby securing deliverance for all his people by the payment of such an immeasurably High price. And we find this word redemption used in that connection, like in Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. We have redemption through his blood, deliverance by payment of a price. Here's the price, his blood, all that he suffered, that is the forgiveness of sin. So I've already made reference to Hebrews 9 12. Not with the blood of uh, goats and cows, but with his own blood, he entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal. Redemption, that is a permanent release that goes even beyond forgiveness. So Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The payment made or the price paid by Christ, the redemption is deliverance from justice and deliverance from the just penalty for all of our sins. And Paul's saying, and we were, and we were, he's redeemed us. In this way. But that's not the only problem or bondage that was ours from which we needed rescue. Come to the next chapter, Galatians chapter 4, and you find Paul using that language again. Galatians chapter 4, we'll start with verse 4. But when the fullness of time uh, had come, God sent forth his son, uh, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So we have been redeemed from being under the law. Now, it's similar, I suppose, to what we've just seen there in Galatians 3, but it goes beyond that. You know the letter to the Galatians. It addresses the whole matter of being under the Mosaic law, especially being under law as a covenant. Not just the Ten Commandments, but it would take in all the ceremonial law, the dietary law, and those things. So it's the idea of under the law, under that covenant, having one's standing before God, having one's approaches to God, having truth from God, all determined by that old covenant. Now, Paul's obviously saying that that's not so with us. These Judaizers are saying, well, it's good that you got Jesus, but you know, 
you really need to become a Jew. You need to be under the, like a Jewish proselyte, you know, from of old. And therefore, you circumcision, but not just that. You keep the whole law. All, all, all of these things of the old covenant, you still need to live under those things. And, and Jesus kind of set the temple, but you're in. But wait a minute, you really do need all of these things if you're really going to be saved. Well, Paul's saying, no. Christ has redeemed us from that. And he, he thus speaks of the old covenant as a form of bondage. Uh, for instance, verse 7, you're no longer a slave, but a son. But you were a slave in that former uh, condition. Or verse 3, he refers especially to the externals of the Mosaic laws when he speaks of the bondage under the elements of the world. You know, even going to uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, you got this yoke on the neck that neither our forefathers nor we were able to bear. But he's calling those Old Testament laws under the Mosaic Covenant a, a, a yoke. You know, when Paul writes here in Galatians 5.1, uh, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's actually referring especially to the Old Covenant, uh, to all the ceremonies and all the things that went with it. And he's saying that's a bondage. It's a bondage from which Christ has redeemed us, has delivered us by payment of a price. So you've been redeemed from that. Now, let me hasten to uh, give some what I hope will be clarifications, even important clarifications. The Apostle Paul is certainly not saying that obedience is bondage. Remember how John puts it in 1 John 5.3, here's the love of God. Uh, We keep his commandments and they're no burden to us. That's our delight. Even in the Old Testament, the idea of delighting in obeying God is seen like Psalm 119 and elsewhere. Further, Paul's not saying that we now have nothing to do with God's law. That was all Old Covenant, the law in any form or fashion. We're now out from under the bed, and that's a bondage that we don't have to be bothered with. No. Paul himself was careful, actually, to uh, clarify this in Galatians 5. Having said, now stand fast in the liberty. We're not under that law, uh, the Mosaic covenant, etc. He then goes on to say, verse 13, about to serve one another, verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbors. Remember how Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments in those two commands, loving God with our all, loving neighbor itself. Well, Paul's still appealing to the law then. We say, no, we're to serve one another out of love because of what the law says. So he's not saying, well, we're, we're not bothered with the law in any sense at all. Further, when Paul speaks of being under the law as a bondage, it's noteworthy that he's including Gentiles in this. You know, this letter, letter was written not mainly to Jewish believers, but to Gentile believers. And you can see that repeatedly, and therefore it's relevant to us. But it begs the question, how can it be said that we were in bondage under the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, in, in what respects have we been delivered from the elements of this world under that covenant? Well, all men, Jew and Gentile, stand condemned under the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And whether under it as a Jew or under it simply as one created by God, all are Again, under uh, stand condemned under that law. 
that was given in connection with that covenant. The law was given, in actual fact, to show us our need of a redeemer. Here in Galatians, Paul says, no, you were under a tutor designed to bring you to Christ. Or he's already said back in Galatians 2.16, how, you know, all the world guilty before God, uh, no flesh justified, every mouth stopped. He says the same over Romans chapter 3. So we had no power to obey the law. It was a bondage in that sense that we were held under wrath, but also that law kept us at a distance from God. And the externals of the law, that is the ceremonial and the dietary matters, well, these were designed to teach that. You know, when you look at some of these uh, Old Testament laws, especially in connection with the Mosaic Covenant, you come in, what's that all about? Uh, this is holy, this is unclean, this is. Well, among other things, this is designed to teach that not everything alike is clean before God. There are things that are acceptable and things that aren't. And it's designed to impress that even physically and what they would touch and what they would do and so forth. Well, in that sense, the Mosaic Covenant with as many laws, though it gave an approach of sorts to God, at the same time, it also was designed to teach man's in a bad way. He must be cleansed. He must be made acceptable. He's at a distance. Even though I gave an approach to God, remember Hebrews chapter 9 talks about while that tabernacle was still standing, here's the veil teaching that the way of access was not open. It was designed to teach man's in a bad way and needs something more. And in that sense, it was a yoke of bondage. It's holding men back from that full and free access to God. But again, how could that be said of us Gentiles? seeing that we were never technically under the Mosaic Covenant. Well, I think the idea is this. It simply meant for us as Gentiles, we were in a worse state even with the Jews. At least provision was made that they had some kind of an approach to God. They had some kind of knowledge of God. And for us, well, for a Jew back in those days, I mean, for a Gentile back in those days, if you wanted to approach God, you had to become a Jew. You had to go through all these ceremonial things. But, but Gentiles as a whole, well, the Paul in Ephesians 4, he's talking about that, alienated from the life of God, being in such a bad way. So for Old Testament Gentiles to have dealings with God, well, they had to come this way. All these externals. And so, too, for Gentiles, then, in that sense, we're under the law uh, uh, as being distanced from God, as being uh, uh, taught by it of our bad state. So it's in that sense, Gentiles, yeah, we were worse off even than the Jews, and they had an approach, but were held at a distance and taught the need for something beyond that covenant. Well, I hope that's all clear as mud. Um, the point is, the Lord Jesus came to deliver us from that. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. Though we might not be slaves, he goes on to say, but sons. That we might have that full and free access. No longer in bondage to externals and the elements of the world. You don't need what these Judaizers are talking about. It's good that you got Jesus. But you know, if you just have these ceremonies, circumcision, but all these other dietary and ceremonial cleansings, then you could really have access to God. Then you that's a bondage. 
Christ has redeemed us from that. We're not now slaves. And God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts in that connection. Well, it's in that sense then that here we are, redeemed by Christ's sinless life as well as his substitutionary death that paid the price for our deliverance, granted us then that true and direct access to God, no longer held at a distance, no longer slaves, but sons enjoying life with our Father, that real and precious dealings with God. The bondage, well, under the ceremonial law and all the restrictions and distancing. Redemption, ah, at the price that Christ paid. Well, now, having that full and free access, having been delivered not only from the law, but the bad state that it was designed to reveal. Well, let me come to yet another passage. I suppose it could be seen as somewhat similar in emphasis. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter wrote in verse 17, If you call on the Father who, without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but, that is, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So, we have been delivered by the payment of that price from what he here calls aimless conduct. What does that mean? Well, Peter could possibly be addressing Jewish converts. He, after all, was the apostle to the Jews. And if so, then it would include talking about their religion, that which had been handed down from their fathers, but it was devoid of reality. In other words, it was about external compliance, about going through the motions, uh, but not really obeying, uh, actually acting in ignorance of God, uh, like the Pharisees or like the Sadducees, uh, superstitious uh, people and so forth. And so the point is, even with their religion, their conduct was empty. It was meaningless. It was worthless. It was a wasted life. And this is indeed a bondage. Yeah, you got your religion. Not God. Ultimately, they live for this world. It's vain conduct. It's aimless conduct. Now, there are those who think that's the primary point that Peter's writing to Jews. However, the recipients addressed were in five Roman provinces, and they were not primarily Jewish. They were Gentiles. Now, it is true that Peter addresses them in terms applicable to Jews when he refers to them at the outset as the dispersion. But he's using this motif, kind of like the Jews in Babylonian captivity, the dispersion. Well, So he's, he's using that motif, but they're actually Gentiles. He says to them, notice chapter 4, and how he uh, uh, says, verse 3, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, and so forth. So it seems better to understand it. He's talking uh, about Gentiles. 
in their past. But it's applicable either way. But certainly the conduct here that he has in view, Gentiles living for their lewdness and lasciviousness and all the like, it calls it aimless. What real good's accomplished? What real good is experienced? You think of sins. People give themselves to it. And yet, does it satisfy? I mean, think in terms of drug addiction or sexual immorality or covetousness, greediness. Does it satisfy? No. They're just driven for more and more and more. Well, okay, I've got that done. I'm perfectly satisfied now. No good. Only they're ruined. He talks, in fact, uh, Paul does in, uh, in Ephesians 4 about these uh, ungodly folk. And he says uh, they're given to all uncleanness with greediness. They can never get enough. More and more and more. Well, so it is. Living in the futility of their mind. And this is so not only of vices and debauchery, but even with regard to religion. You think in terms of, well, even the Jewish religion, those who are just going through the motions. But how about idolatry? When uh, uh, Paul says to the Iconians about, uh, uh, you know, turn from these vain things, these worthless things. Remember how that's opened up in, in the Old Testament more than once, like in Isaiah uh, 44. You got this guy, he's got this tree, right? And, and he, he's carving his smiley face on this tree, he's making his god, uh, but actually part of it, he's warming himself, a bit of a cold day, and, and hey, let's cook some bread with the other part of this tree. And, and he's so foolish, he's so blind. It's what aimless conduct. Man, can you not see? If we saw somebody doing that now, it'd be laughable, right? What about the guy who's trying to find meaning in sexual immorality? Maybe it's porn. What about the guy who's trying to find meaning in uh, substance abuse? What about the guy that's trying to find meaning by way of, if I can just get more of this world, if I can just accumulate more toys or more money or more, it's idolatry. And it's as aimless as that guy put his car, his smiley face on that tree that he's cooking uh, his bread with the rest of it. So the point is, whether Jew or Gentile, whether given to overt sin or simply empty religion, it's all described as aimless conduct. And it's set forth as a bondage. That's the picture. Bondage to futility. A, a meaningless empty life. And you know, of course, how Solomon himself came to see that is indeed the case with life under the sun. You exclude God, get God out of the picture, vanity of vanities. What good does it do? Is it some temporary gratification uh, from of your senses or a little bit of money that you've got, but lo and behold, now you've got worries about who's going to eat it up, and there it goes. Vanity, no aim, no purpose, no hope, Kind of like living like an animal, just for uh, satisfying the appetites. Here's a creature created to know God. Man, yet enslaved to false gods and foolish notions. Peter calls it here ignorance. Uh, a creature created to rule over the world, and yet, look, in bondage to it. And what a terrible bondage it is. Again, think of the typical worldly. 
What's life all about? What's he living for? It's, it's meaningless. Uh, to use the picture from Ecclesiastes, it's like chasing the wind or trying to get full by eating a meal of wind, right? So here, we've got this bowl full of wind. Somehow we've been able to capture it. And, and now you're going to beat up here, right? E- eat your fill. Ain't no fill. It's aimless conduct. It's vanity of vanities. Well, that's the picture. Is that what you're doing with your life? Chasing after the wind, trying to get full? Remember the word gospel, what it means? Good news. Good news. Jesus Christ came to deliver man from that empty, worthless conduct. He paid a very dear price to secure deliverance from that bondage. Not only that sinners might be saved from hell at last, yes, yes, that too, but also that we might now be delivered from that aimless conduct, that we might now know the true and living God as our Father, as Peter's here underscored in First Peter chapter 1, that we might have now real life, real meaning, real purpose, real satisfaction in knowing God. Peter's underscoring that there's more to life than meets the eye. He said that back in chapter 1 and verse 3, says that when he comes also at the latter part of chapter 3, here's true life. And then afterwards, well, we've got this inheritance. Incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. And now in the meantime, though you've not seen Christ, you know him. You know him. You've got this joy unspeakable in him right now. It's because he came, paid such a price, not silver, gold, tawdry things, but his own precious blood, suffering and dying in the place of sinners to deliver us from the bondage of that aimless, worthless conduct and life. Well, the point that the word redeem, redemption, ransom, uh, it underscores that we were bound. We were truly, by nature, in bondage. Now, I read earlier about Exodus 21, this guy who, was liable to the death penalty because uh, he knew what his ox could do and he let it gore and kill somebody. Well, we were in a greater bondage than that. We needed a greater redemption. We were under the curse of the law because we had not kept the law. But Christ has redeemed us, having been made a curse for us. Or I made reference to that guy who, uh, he lost his house. Maybe again, some uh, poor financial decisions and the like, and he ended up losing his house. Well, we lost more than that. We lost everything. Nothing worth living for at all. Just aimless conduct. Then, too, our bondage was worse than that of that man who had sold himself into slavery there in Leviticus 25, 47. We weren't sold to a man, a person, except Satan and sin. And we were slaves. I also made reference to how the word redemption is used about the man who's died. His rich brother can't redeem him, can't pay the price for release, to get him released from death. He should go on living forever. Well, Christ has paid such a high price that we have been released, and we do live forever. 
But it's important. Well, we understand the word redeem, redemption. It points to a release from bondage. In each of these cases, it also points to released to privilege and blessing. Uh, to quote an old Irish pastor from the 19th century, Marcus Rainsford, he said, the redemption of Christ not only delivers us from the state of ruin in which it found us, but introduces us into a state of glory which God has provided when he gave his dear son. So at last and forever, whoa, what privilege, what blessing, but wait a minute, even now, in the meantime, Because when we're told how we have been redeemed uh, uh, from the curse of the law, the very next verse says that the blessing of Abraham might come on Gentiles. That is the promise of the Holy Spirit. You were not simply delivered from the curse of the law. That is the penalty that was yours. But it's so that you should receive this great blessing, uh, even including uh, life in Christ by way of the Holy Spirit being given you. Or with Galatians 4, talks about to redeem those who are under the law, but not just that, that we might receive the adoption as sons, and furthermore, you've been given the Holy Spirit, whereby we cry out of Father, the Spirit of God's Son, making that very real to us. Here, when we're told by Peter how we uh, have been delivered by payment of a price from that futile and aimless life, well, what's the point? It's so that we should now know God. That we should have life, and that more abundantly, as Jesus himself put it. That we have true life, eternal life, begun now in knowing God. Brethren, we've been delivered from in order to be delivered to such rich privilege and blessing. And I would apply it this way. When Paul would write to the Galatians, he's writing especially about that bondage to uh, the Old Covenant and so forth. And Christ has set you free from that, he says. And he said in that connection, therefore stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made you free and be not entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Well, that has to do with the externals of religion and so forth, life under the old covenant. But brethren, that language certainly has application. You've been set free from the curse of the law. That which your sin exposed you to. Don't be entangled again with that yoke of bondage. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been set free from an aimless, worthless conduct in life. Stand fast in the liberty of Christ is made. Know God. The light in your sonship. The light in your blessings. We can't. We've been redeemed. Might God help us to see we have really been redeemed. Was the price paid for your redemption? Almost certainly. Then you're redeemed. Might God help us stand fast in the liberty that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now man, by nature, when you look at the bondage that he is in, I think we'd have to agree that makes mankind, individuals, a loser. A loser here and a loser hereafter. Here they live this meaningless, empty, wasted life, only to hear at the end, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And if you're here without Christ, that's you. Sadly, many are deceived by Satan. 
deceived by sin. They don't even see it. They don't recognize the problem. But when Jesus said, I've come that you have life, you may have life and that more abundantly. It means real life. A life of knowing God, not just life forever, but that life forever begun now. This wonderful deliverance from that painful bondage to a meaningless, wasted life, as well as from uh, the curse of the law. And so if you're here without Christ, I would simply ask you, you're in bondage. Will you continue in that bondage? Will you now go on as enslaved and then be damned forever? Will you now go on in that bondage to futility, your empty, worthless life, and then be damned forever? I mean, does that make sense? Wasting your life for what? I've got good news. It doesn't have to be that way. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is a mighty and gracious redeemer. And he truly saves sinners. Died to save sinners, does to save sinners. Tell sinners, come to me. I will give you rest. Come to me, you who thirst. He's rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you're here without Christ, let me ask you, will you have freedom? Will you have life? If so, you must have him. No other hope, but here's hope enough. You can have Believe on the Lord Jesus. You go to Christ. You will be saved. My God grant it to be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for such a redeemer as the Lord Jesus Christ. We as the redeemed thank you for the great liberties and freedoms that are ours in Christ as part of this great, so great salvation. We ask that you would help us and to stand fast in that liberty and to know very experientially the joy that is ours being released from the curse of the law, fully forgiven and accepted, even justified, but also uh, being delivered from uh, just uh, externals and bondage to outward things that kept men at a distance and, and was designed to show the bad way. Oh, we've been, we've been delivered from that bad way that the law revealed. Lord, we've been delivered, too, from that aimless conduct of a life for sin, life in sin, and yet now, oh, given life in Christ, and that forever. Father, grant we would stand fast and live to the full, that blessed liberty that is ours in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.